This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we're marking Women's History Month by revealing the pioneering women who have been honoured with an English Heritage blue plaque at their former London homes. To discuss their stories and blue plaques, I'm joined by English Heritage's curatorial director, Anna Evis. Hi, it's great to be here. So Anna, for people who don't know, let's start with the blue plaque scheme. What is it exactly? The London Blue Plaque Scheme has been running for over 150 years and it celebrates the achievements of remarkable people who have made London their home, marking the connection between that person and a building in which they lived or worked. So if you walk down a central London street and look up, you will probably see one of these blue plaques. They are distinctive, circular usually a rather lovely shade of blue with white lettering, and they record the name and a little bit of information about a remarkable person. And crucially, that plaque is on the building in which they lived or worked. There are currently over 900 plaques in London, and English Heritage puts up about 12 new ones every year. After a lot of research and... After a lot of research. Yeah, and I right. suppose voting by the public and that sort of thing. Well, the scheme is, a, is driven by public nomination. Mm. So anybody can nominate somebody for a blue plaque and then we consider those nominations and the decision about which nominations go through and, and, and which people get plaques is made by a panel of, of experts drawn from outside of English heritage. Who started the scheme then and and why did they do it? The scheme was the idea of a reforming MP called William Ewart back in 1866. He wanted to celebrate the remarkable history of the people who lived and worked in London. One of those Victorian inventions which is stuck, effectively. Well, yes, and uh, we think that it's very likely to be the earliest such scheme in the world and it has been remarkably influential. And as it was picked up by this MP, a local authority then ran ran with it, is that right? In the first instance, it was run by the Society of Arts. And then in the early 20th century, the London County Council took it on. They were very keen on it because they saw it as a way of identifying buildings of historic significance within London. So they really drove the scheme forward. They standardised the rules. They put a lot of research into the scheme. And then the scheme was later taken on by the Greater London Council, which, of course, replaced the London County Council. And when that folded in 1986, the scheme was given to English Heritage to run. So what's the criteria? What do you need to do to get a blue plaque in London? You need to have done something which has had a great and lasting impact on society. Candidates for a blue plaque will only get one if there is a London building still extant, still surviving, which they're associated with. And that's a very important criterion for us. Some schemes mark the place where something happened, the site of a building in which somebody lived. Our scheme doesn't do that. We're interested in tying a person to the actual building. And the other important criterion is that a person should have been dead for at least 20 years. And that's really because we like to make sure that somebody's reputation has settled. And because we only put up about 12 plaques a year and we get probably about 100 nominations a year, it is very competitive. It's very selective. 
We're talking, of course, today about women honorees, but I'm guessing that perhaps they're not as well represented as men with blue plaques in London. Is that right? Yes. There are, as I said, over 900 blue plaques in our scheme in London, and only about 14% of those are to women. That's still quite a small amount. So why do you think there is this gulf still? It's partly explained by the scheme's long history. So when the first plaque was put up, and that was to the poet Lord Byron in 1867, men dominated public life almost completely. Mm. Women couldn't vote in England, they couldn't take a university degree, and they were barred from many professions. By 1905, only five women, one actress and four writers, had been commemorated with a plaque, including George Eliot. And although since those days the position of women in society has changed considerably, we've been slow to acknowledge female achievements, I think. When English Heritage took on the scheme in 1986, the number of blue plaques for women stood at less than 50. So it has been slow, and that's something we're trying to address now. Mm. So there's a bit of catching up to do, really. Yeah. And that's as a result of societal change, really. It is. And I think what's interesting now is the sort of women that we're commemorating or have been commemorated in the last 20 years are very different from those writers. I mean, they represent a much wider field of achievement. Their lives have been touched by major events in history, First and Second World Wars, for example, political change like the enfranchisement of women, the availability of higher education to women and so on. And so we're seeing a wider range of women being commemorated through the scheme now. And that's very exciting. Let's take a look at uh, some of those names then, uh, those people involved in the female emancipation movement. We often hear stories, of course, about civil disobedience in that movement for the women's right to vote, that crucial thing. Didn't it start peacefully at first? It was peaceful for a very long time. During the 19th century, there's a, there's a long history of campaigning peacefully for the women's right to vote. In 1832, which of course was the year of the Reform Act, which enfranchised more men, there was a petition to Parliament in that year from a single woman, presented on behalf of a single woman, asking for the right to vote. And that was followed up in the 1860s by a mass petition, which was initiated by women, including Emily Davis, who also has a plaque in our scheme, but presented by a man. And those petitions were unsuccessful. Did they not have strong arguments? or uh, They had strong arguments. There was no will in the government to listen to them, really. Did male obstinacy. Well, you might say that. And, and what happens then is that from the 1860s onwards, many hundreds of small organisations form themselves, suffrage societies, campaigning for extending the franchise so that everybody can vote, including women. And suffrage meaning? The right to vote. And so there is this movement. It's constitutional. It's peaceful. Its members are committed to peacefully persuading government, persuading politicians to change the law. So it's almost as if because the door was being shut in their faces, this campaign and movement began gathering pace. It's slightly more complicated than that, in fact, because what happens, I supp- and I suppose you might say for any political movement for change, you get you know a large body of people who are campaigning peacefully and then you get outriders. Now, in this case, the peaceful campaigners for women's suffrage continued 
right up until 1918 and beyond when women did get the vote. And these suffrage societies, as they were called, formed themselves together into something called the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. And that was formed in the 1890s. So the women's right to vote movement does start peacefully. Who was one of the key characters in that movement? Who's honoured with a blue plaque? Millicent Garrett Fawcett was the president of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. And she was unanimously elected in 1897. She was a very impressive woman. She was born in Suffolk in 1847. She had no formal education herself, but she married an older man, a Cambridge professor who was blind. He was also the postmaster general, and she had to do a lot of work with and for him. She was very inspired by her sister, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who also has a plaque, who was a doctor and who founded a hospital. Amazing woman. And Millicent got involved in the suffrage movement in the 1860s and co-founded a Cambridge College for Women, Newnham College. She was thoughtful, intelligent, moderate in her approach, a very persuasive, clear speaker and very good at lobbying, but she was not in favour of more militant approaches. Basically, she's one of the first, the, the early pioneers. She's an early pioneer and she is extremely able and very well connected to influential politicians. However, by 1903, you know, she hadn't achieved anything. Nothing had moved. And 60 years, all told, of campaigning peacefully for the women's vote had not delivered. That's where things start to change, I believe. And we get the name the Pankhursts. And there's a few of them. Uh, we're going to touch on a couple and you're going to mention a third as well they are all I believe honoured with blue plaques as well can you give us the names? Yes, Emmeline Christabel and Sylvia Pankhurst Now which one comes first? Emmeline comes first she's the mother of Christabel and Sylvia And when does her campaigning begin? Well, Emmeline is very interesting a very different sort of character from Millicent Fawcett She's about 10 years younger, and she was born and raised in Manchester, which in the 19th century is a city of great radicalism and reform. She attended her first suffrage meeting at the age of 14, and she was involved with the Independent Labour Party. She married a socialist lawyer, aren't many of those around, Richard Pankhurst, and Richard himself was a campaigner for Votes for Women, and he had presented in 1870 another of these unsuccessful petitions for Votes for Women. And he would often say to her, why are you women so patient? Why don't you force us to give you the vote? And in 1903, he was dead by then as it happened. That's what she did. She founded the Women's Social and Political Union in her own home in Manchester with her daughters. And its motto was deeds, not words. So that marked a very different kind of approach. It's a real sea change compared to Millicent Garrett Fawcett, isn't it? It is. And she, Emmeline, was apparently a very gifted speaker and could bewitch an audience. And she was a great fundraiser. So there are stories of, you know, she'd address a meeting and apparently people would throw cash and jewels, you know, at the stage. And so they were able to raise money. And Christabel, her older daughter, was a brilliant organiser and tactician. So the two of the, Emmeline was the figurehead really. 
and Christabel organised things. And Sylvia, what was her role? Sylvia was an artist and she had come down to London to study art and she was more interested than the other two, I would say, in working class women. She did a survey of working women in England. She did a trip where she she went round working class communities in England, drawing and painting working women, and, and it was a great revelation for her. She helped develop their visual identity. You know, they had the colours, green, purple and white, and she designed banners and badges and so on. And Do we know the Pankhursts as the first suffragettes and that name? How is that coined, suffragette? In 1905, Christabel Pankhurst and her friend Annie Kenny heckled a Liberal Party meeting in Manchester and were arrested and charged with obstruction. And they chose to go to prison rather than to pay a fine because they wanted the attention, they wanted to make the point. This is a really important moment for this movement. And get coverage in the press, Exactly. They were very savvy. And the Daily Mail coined the word suffragettes to describe them. And this, of course, was not a complimentary word, but the suffragettes adopted it and made it their own. That's really interesting. Exactly. And so they were very they were militant, but as we've already touched on, they were extremely clever at manipulating the press. And Millicent Fawcett acknowledged this, that although she didn't condone many of the things they did, she could see that the coverage that they got was in some ways better than what she described as the withering contempt of silence, which of course is in many ways what had happened so far, we know, in in terms of that peaceful campaigning. Suffragettes were colourful copy for the newspapers. And all this, I think, is is an evolution as a result of the fact that the polite campaigning wasn't working. So it you wasn't had to working. change tact. It wasn't working, but there, it's fair, it is fair to say that there is still a debate raging to what extent the suffragettes did drive the movement forward and to what extent they held it back. Because what happened in the end, of course, was that the First World War intervened and the suffragettes didn't really sustain impetus during the First World War. In fact, Mrs Pankhurst, Emmeline Pankhurst, was, was a proponent of handing out white feathers to encourage men to join up. And what seems to have happened is that Millicent Fawcett, behind the scenes, continued lobbying, continued those conversations, kept at it, and actually was able to persuade the government to pass that legislation. The three Pankhursts we've just spoken about, do they all have a blue plaque in London on different properties? Emmeline and Christabel have a plaque on the same property. Sylvia's plaque is on Cheney Walk, where she lived in the early years of the, of the century when she was, a, she was an impoverished art student. It was quite difficult to pin down a building for Christabel and Emmeline because during their years of campaigning, so this is really in between 1905 and up to the First World War, they were almost itinerant. They were sleeping on people's floors, they were moving from place to place. So in fact, the house on which they are marked is the house which Emmeline lived there after the war. The First World War is a, is a key moment in this, I think, um, in the development of women's rights and the right to vote. At, at what stage do certain women earn the right to vote? The Representation of People's Act is passed in 1918, and that does give women the right to vote for the first time, but it's only propertied women. 
So it's another 10 years before all women, regardless of how wealthy they are, get the right to vote. From the early days with Millicent Garrett Fawcett, how long did it take from the early pioneer to the right to vote? If you think that the first petition was presented to Parliament in 1832, if all women don't get the vote till 1928, that's nearly 100 years. That's a long time campaigning. I don't think we would put up with that these days. (laughs) The list of other women to be honoured with blue plaques includes some women who were pushing the boundaries of achievements, not just in the political sphere, but in education, science, this sort of thing. Can you talk about one of the women who was really pushing the envelope in in science? Rosalind Franklin was a pioneering chemist who was involved with the discovery of the structure of DNA. She was born in 1920 and had had a short life. She, She died at the age of 37, very sadly. But she was certainly one of the beneficiaries of the movements we've been talking about. She was interested in chemistry and physics. She went to St Paul's Girls' School in London, and then she went to Newnham College, so the college founded by Millicent Fawcett, to study chemistry. And that's a really important point because women like Millicent Fawcett, Emily Davis, they understood that getting the right to vote was only part of the story in terms of women's equality, that education is really critical to enabling women then to go on and earn a living or fulfil their lives in other ways. So Rosalind Franklin was a beneficiary of that. She did her degree at Cambridge and on graduation she went to work for a research association called the British Coal Utilisation Research Association and she studied carbon and coal and was at the time credited for her work in that field. But I suppose the really significant thing for us today is that she developed expertise in the techniques of X-ray crystallography, which is still used today to identify the structure, function of atoms, biological molecules, and so on. And she became expert in this technique. And in the 50s, was working on trying to identify the form of the DNA molecule. And using this technique, she and her research team were the first to take a photograph of that helix structure. Wow. Now, that photograph was leaked to or given to Watson and Crick, who are quite famous for having discovered the structure, and they were able to use it in their research. But her discovery was really central to theirs. And because we're talking about it today, it does get remembered. It does get remembered. And rather tragically for her, because she died she died in 1958, they were subsequently awarded the Nobel Prize for their research. But the Nobel Prize is not posthumous. It doesn't, it's not given to people who have died already. So her name was not cited mm. in that award. But she undoubtedly played a very important part in that discovery. I also understand that there's a blue plaque that honours the accomplished photographer Lee Miller along with her husband, the painter and art patron, Sir Ronald Penrose. What can you tell us about Lee Miller? Lee Miller was an American photojournalist and photographer. She was born in New York State in 1907, and she began modelling at the age of 20. And she was very elegant, beautiful, blonde, leggy, and she had that sort of 20s look. And so she was very successful as a model. 
But in 1929, she went to Europe because she wanted to study photography with Man Ray, the surrealist photographer. And she sort of landed on him, really. Okay. (laughs) He became besotted with her and they worked together. And together they developed the process known as solarization. You might see these images were very characteristic. In fact, images of her, but not just of her, were almost this sort of silvery look. It looks as if the sun is kind of bursting out behind the the, the subject. It is a bit like that. It's it's, It's rather beautiful. And so she was very active around 1930, working with him, and she established photographic studios in Paris and New York in the early 30s. She became a very successful portrait and fashion photographer. You know, she knew Picasso, Jean Cocteau. So, you know, that's all rather glamorous and and exciting. But she moved to London in 1939 and became a staff photographer for Vogue, documenting the Blitz in London. Interesting. Yeah, a real change of direction. And in 1942, was accredited to the US Army as a photojournalist. And then she went, between 1942 and 46, she was documenting the Second World War and its after effects. So she photographed the first use of napalm at Saint Malo. She went into Dachau and Buchenwald, when and just after they were liberated. And some of her photographs, not only of the victims in those concentration camps, but camp guards, the officials and so on, are really very harrowing. Mm. And she felt strongly that her photography should be... It was historical evidence. And at the time, actually, it was used, it was published in the press to demonstrate that these atrocities had happened. And famously, after photographing these horrific things, she took herself to Hitler's private apartments in Munich and she walked in and she wiped her muddy boots on the bath mat in his bathroom and she took a bath in his bathtub and slept in his bed. And her companion took a photograph of her in Hitler's bath, which is quite famous and rather shocking. You know, she's a beautiful woman looking out of his bath with her muddy boots on the mat and a photograph of Hitler on the bath. So she really changed in terms of focus of her work. She sounds as though she made history in her own right, but also she documented history. She documented the present as it was happening, and that became history with a certain verve and passion and, you know, a real unique style. She did, and I think that, you know, the range and the range of her work from those very ritzy photographs of the 30s, you know, society photography, but also then the surrealist work, and then this really extraordinary photojournalism is very unusual in a single photographer. And unusual that she was um, sharing a blue plaque with her husband. Yes, her husband, Roland Penrose, was a very important in championing the surrealist movement in Britain and a great collector of contemporary art. So that's why he the plaque is partly to him. Hmm. And the plaque is on their house near Hampstead Heath, Downshire Hill, where they lived from 1939 till 1947, so during that time when she was doing all this remarkable work. And they were great hosts. The house was a gathering point for artists, politicians and journalists, so it seemed like a good place. What other inspiring women have been recognised with a blue plaque? most recently and why? Last year we put up a blue plaque to the 
war writer Martha Gellhorn. In some ways, a little bit similar to Lee Miller. One's a photographer, one's a writer. Yeah, both Americans Mm -hmm. and born around the same time. She was Martha was born in 1908. And she made her mark really by writing about the effect of war on the lives of ordinary people. And she had started that work during the Great Depression. She dropped out of college because she she felt she had a vocation as a journalist and a writer. And in 1934, she was 26 years old. She joined a team of reporters in the US who were reporting on the effects of the Great Depression. And her style of writing really stood out. And she was furious about the treatment of the poor and the weak and the dispossessed. And this caught the eye of all sorts of people, including the Roosevelt's, Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of the president. And so she became very well known quite young. In the 30s, in 37, she reported on the Spanish Civil War. That really set the way forward. She was, I mean, like Lee Miller, she was very active in reporting on the Second World War. Um, In her case, remarkably, she stowed away on a ship so that she could record at first hand the D-Day landings. She was married at that time to the writer Ernest Hemingway, who didn't like the fact that she was out and about, you know, away from him Mm. writing. And he had got the official gig to record the D-Day landings for Colliers, which was the agency that she was working for. She was furious that he'd taken this from her. And so off she went down to the docks and she stowed away on a ship, dressed up as a nurse, hid in the loos until, you know, they'd taken off across the channel and stole a march on Hemingway because he was stuck on the journalist ship while she was actually... On the front line. Absolutely on the front line. So Mm. she was quite a tough cookie. And, And then she went to Dachau at the liberation of Dachau I think she was the first woman into that camp Mm. and that really was uh, you know appalling and and if you see interviews with her she talked till very late in her life about the impact that that had had on her and then subsequently she wrote about the Vietnam War and the plight of Palestinian refugees although she hated the English climate and sort of grumbled about how chilling and dreary it was she did like London. And in 1950, she bought a flat in Cadogan Square, which she had for until the rest of her life. There, she hosted, met, entertained all sorts of interesting people, other journalists, John Pilger, John Simpson. She was famously a terrible cook, but a great drinker and smoker. And so when we unveiled the plaque to Martha Gellhorn last year in Cadogan Square, we had a wonderful event where Victoria Glendinning, who was a good friend of hers, John Simpson, John Pilger talked about what it was like to go and see her there and the sort of long late night conversations over a whiskey. <laughs> who do you think is the most inspirational female recipient of a blue plaque? We've, we've talked about some sort of history makers, almost documentary makers there in a way. Prior to that, the suffragette. Uh, movement. So who's your most inspiring? It's difficult to pick one because there are so many different sorts of inspirational stories. But I do have a soft spot for the aviator Amy Johnson. Amy was born in Hull. Again, she was a bit like Rosalind Franklin in that she was an early beneficiary of the extending of higher education to women. She went to Sheffield University and she studied economics. 
And she got her degree and came down to London to earn a living. And she ended up working as a typist in a legal firm. And it was quite dull. And then what was her aviation achievement? Well, she wanted to find something. She wanted to find some joy in her life. And so one Sunday afternoon when she was utterly bored, she got on a bus and she went up to the London Aerodrome, which was in North London, Stag Lane. And of course, that part of London had for three decades been the hub of the developing interest in the aviation industry. It's where Geoffrey de Havilland made all his aeroplanes. And so you could sit back and watch people flying. And that's what she did. And she got the bug. This was in 1928. By the summer of 1929, she had got her pilot's license. But she also got a ground engineer's license. She was the first woman to do that. And the reason that that was so important was because she wanted to fly long distances. And then, remarkably, the following year, so in 1930 now, she flew on her own from Croydon to Darwin, Australia. She cut out the maps herself. She seems to have drawn a diagonal line over land from, from Croydon to Darwin. With various stops on the way, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it took 19 days, all sorts of places. She, you know, Aleppo, Baghdad, Timor, Rangoon, Calcutta. And she became a huge celebrity. During the 30s, she was, she was like a superstar. She met Charlie Chaplin. She met the president of America. There were songs written about her. And I think that's... Almost like the British Amelia Earhart, I suppose. Yes. and Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Right. And, and like Amelia Earhart, uh, very sadly, she had a tragic end. She was working for the Auxiliary Air Force in, in 1941 and her plane crashed in the Thames estuary and her body was never found. Oh, that's very sad. The last female blue plaque honoree that we'll, we'll talk about, what is her name and what's her story? Her name is Hertha Ayrton. And I've chosen her because until I saw her blue plaque, I'd never heard about. I'd never heard of her, and that captures for me one of the wonderful things about the blue plaques. Some people you will have heard of, like Jimi Hendrix or Freddie Mercury, or somebody like Hertha. I'd never heard of her, and so it might prompt you to go and find out about her, which is what I did. She was the daughter of a Polish refugee born in 1854 in Portsea, and she was really interested in maths and science, and she managed to get a place at Girton College, which again was one of these early collegiate foundations for women. And while she was there studying maths, she founded the College Fire Brigade. So she drafted in Captain Shaw, who who ran the London Fire Brigade and was a great public hero. And she got him to come and advise and, and teach them all how to set up a fire brigade, which ran actually for many, many years. She married a physicist, And she worked with him and she developed his research into electric arcs. And after he died in 1908, she moved her lab into their drawing room in her house, which is just near Paddington in in Norfolk Square. And in her drawing room, she invented a fan called the Ayrton Flapper Fan, which could dispel poisonous gas. And she organised the production of over 100,000 fans for use on the Western Front. Oh, wow, fascinating. And she was the first woman to be admitted to the Institute of Electrical Engineers. But despite being awarded a Royal Society Medal for her research, she wasn't allowed to become a member on the grounds that a married woman had no standing in law. Okay, But, you know, but a a remarkable story and one that I would never have known if there hadn't been a plaque. So a lifesaver, really. Yeah. The Blue Plaque scheme tells a story across London, certainly. And it tells a story, I think, of English and British 
history and even world history because we have people from around the world who are staying in London or who've stayed in London and been recognised with a blue plaque. Why is the blue plaque scheme so important to the telling of these different histories? The scheme people's history, doesn't it? It's easy when we're thinking about history to think in terms of movements or battles or political changes. It's actually very captivating to have an insight on history which is through the people that made it. And that, as we've already discussed, the stories we've talked about have had a European reach, a global reach. And what I love about the scheme is the way that it opens our eyes to the often hidden history of London's bricks and mortar. So that in Kennington, for instance, you can see the modest upper floor flat where Charlie Chaplin lived in 1911 with his brother just before he departed in 1912 for America and fame. You know, he became a global superstar, perhaps one of the first. Or you can see the kitchen where Elizabeth David created recipes that changed the tastes of a nation the guest house where Marconi carried out those early wireless experiments, and the quiet room where Sylvia Plath wrote the bell jar, or the noisy one where Jimi Hendrix strummed his guitar in a smart Mayfair flat. So it really peoples those streets and gives us a sense of their place in time. London has a rich tapestry based on that. It um, does. But we want to make it richer by levelling out the playing fields. Does English Heritage have any plans to attract more female nominees? We've been campaigning for more female nominees for a couple of years and so far that's borne fruit. So we are now getting you know, a far greater proportion than we used to of, of nominations for women. I would say just over half of the nominations we've received now are for women, which wasn't the case a few years ago. But we're always eager for more and very keen for anybody who's listening to this who has an idea about a great woman who lived or worked in London to have a look at our web pages where we have lots of instructions on how they can nominate somebody for a plaque. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about the Blue Plaque Scheme or to nominate a female figure, head to the English Heritage website. We're back next week to discover the conservation project to rescue a unique windmill in Suffolk. It's something else when you see a windmill that's been let go for the first time after restoration, when you see something working that hasn't worked for sometimes over 100 years. Thanks for listening. See you next time.